A mentor is someone who allows you to see the hope inside yourself. Oprah Winfrey. Hey friends, welcome to episode 36 of Intentional Living and Leadership. I have to tell you, I am having so much fun doing this. I absolutely love getting to connect with you, learn from you, grow with you, and push each other to be our best selves and to be better leaders. Thank you to all of the loyal listeners that have been tuning in to this podcast really since day one, 11 months ago when I got this idea to do this podcast. If this is your first episode, thank you so much for being here today. I hope that this podcast inspires you on your journey and in your leadership. Every two weeks, we release a new episode focused on strategies for living an intentional life, inspiring other people, and making the world a better place. I truly believe that each of us has a unique contribution to make to the world, and I hope that this podcast will be a resource for you to courageously and intentionally go out and make a difference. Today, I am thrilled to bring you an inspiring interview with Chevy Cook. Chevy is a West Point graduate. He has a master's in organizational psychology from Columbia University. He has a master's in leadership development development from the University of Texas, El Paso, and he is currently pursuing his doctorate at Tufts University. He's also a visiting researcher at Harvard Kennedy School and the co-founder and executive director of militarymentors.org. And we're going to talk all about the power of mentoring on this episode. Chevy also currently serves in the Army and has deployed during the surge, the Arab Spring, and the fight against ISIS. He was also awarded two Military Outstanding Volunteer Service Medals for Sustained Community and Organizational Investment and the 2016 Secretary of the Army Diversity and Leadership Award. Chevy is extremely accomplished. I'm sure you can tell that already, but he also has this incredible story of overcoming adversity growing up and the power of mentorship and the power of belief. You're going to hear all these incredible insights from from his background and his journey. You can get the show notes and ways to connect with Chevy at my website, calwalters.me, just my name.me. And if you enjoy this, please share it with a friend, let other people know about it. So go grab something to take notes with and get ready to soak up the powerful life and leadership lessons from my friend, Chevy Cook. Chevy, welcome to the show. Hey, Cal. Thanks for having me today. I'm super excited to be here. It's uh, how are you and your family navigating the COVID-19 as we're recording? We're all kind of adjusting to that. How are things going for all? We are uh, navigating it. Right? <laughs> Every, everyone's navigating it. Uh, the new normal is a phrase I've heard a lot of. Um, yeah. So we're just trying to craft what that new normal is for us, um, but trying to also stay uh, purposeful about what we do. Right. It's, um, you know, my daughter goes to school for a purpose. So I'm trying to keep that purpose in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife has a job for a purpose and we're trying to keep that in mind and et cetera, et cetera. So trying to be purposeful about what we do. And uh, how old are your kids? I think you mentioned at least one daughter. Yeah, so London is 10. She's born on the 4th of July on Fort Bragg, as any Patriots daughter would be. And <laughs> I love um, my youngest was a surprise. Uh, so she is just over one. She's about 15 months. She's born on Thanksgiving, my first semester of PhD study. So 
Currently, I only have kids uh, once a decade and on <laughs> national holidays. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, hey, I would love to dive into, there's so many topics I want to cover with you, but I'd love to start by diving a little bit into your background and your upbringing, kind of rewind the clock for a little bit. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your story and kind of what led you eventually to West Point? So uh, I was born in Tampa, Florida. I claim Columbia, South Carolina just because, you know, uh, that's where I ended up graduating from high school and everything. Spent the majority of my youth. But the story starts in Florida. I am a mixed race individual. Um, and those two sides of my family, uh, the Caucasian side and African-American sides, uh, found each other on a dance floor, actually, in the 70s. Um, my mom was a dancer. My birth mother was a dancer. And so was my father. And uh, they met on a dance floor doing disco stuff, got competitive, honestly, about it. And we're making money off of it. I will also like flipping uh, pizzas and actually wow. living. Be- yeah, they live behind the pizza place as well. Um, but eventually, uh, I always say that that uh, disco dance came to an end. Um, it just didn't work out <clears throat> through a couple of different circumstances. Their relationship split. And then my father made some unscrupulous choices. And that would uh, send him to prison. We eventually had to go somewhere. So when he canvassed his family of who would take me and my brother, Sean, I had a younger brother at the time, two years my junior, uh, the majority of the family thought it was too much of a burden to take us both. So they said, well, we'll take one. You know, we'll take Chevy. And someone else was like, hey, I'll take Sean. Well, only one of them, his oldest sister, Dolores, who lived in South Carolina, said, Hey, I'll take them both. She already had seven kids in the house um, wow. that were all grown and teenagers and everything. So that's how we ended up getting to South Carolina. Now that begets a question of where, where, where's mom, you know, yeah. in this whole uh, situation. Well, when they split, when they, you know, divorced, there was some really bad blood between the two. And from what I'm told, uh, my father at the time was like, "Hey, the only way I'm gonna leave you alone." is if you give me the kids and you leave me alone. So um, she decided to disappear for a long time. So uh, that's how I ended up in South Carolina. I, I kind of paused there if that's okay. So how did you cope? How did you and your brother cope with all of this transition around this time? Um, the, the, I don't think there is coping at that, at that, at that age, right? Um, People, go, people naturally have coping mechanisms, of course, but we didn't, I mean, you don't have any outlets when you're five or three, uh, which was what we were okay. when we moved to South Carolina. You, you know, you just, you react, you do, um, you keep going, hopefully you persevere, and you probably uh, tuck some stuff away for some uh, pain that creeps out later. So I think that's what we did. The, but the best thing in all of this was we at least had each other. So um, we were deeply imaginative. Uh, we, this was the middle 80s, so this is the time when uh, you could stay outside until the lights uh, cut on um, on the street, which was uh, a universal rule, I believe, in America back then. Um, so we just we, we deep dove into uh, each other and um, just kind of working through it. And uh, the situation in South Carolina we moved into actually wasn't the greatest, and we just... A lot of make-believe and a lot of um, not asking questions about where mommy and daddy is because mm-hmm. we just had to move on. 
So were you the older of the two brothers? Yes, I am. And okay. um, for, a, for a long time, I, uh, I kind of stepped into a, a fatherly role, if you will, uh, for my brother. Um, my house I moved into, uh, yeah, a lot of older cousins that were boys, but all doing unscrupulous stuff. And she was not uh, with a man. And then eventually when I moved in with uh, Mama Jay, she never married a guy either. So, yeah, I was always kind of his, a lot of things for Sean, as he was a lot of things for me. So how long did you live with your aunt before you moved in with Mama Jay? Uh, that lasted maybe two years. Okay. Um, it was just uh, very untenable, to say the least. Um, this is a, a middle 80s uh, neighborhood, black um, stereotypical African-American, I should say. Uh, I mean, there were drugs in the neighborhood. There was other things in the neighborhood and my cousins were, were in on that stuff. So eventually the place we would go to uh, next door to borrow milk or borrow sugar or whatever it may be, you know, m- uh, me and my brother were kind of cute, I guess, uh, being these little kids and they would, um, my aunts and cousins go, hey, go, Go ask uh, her name. Her nickname is Sunkissed, uh, Mama J. Go ask Sunkissed if if we can get some milk or some soda or something. We go next door and ask for the stuff and come back and and bring you know try to supplement our home. So after two years of doing that, uh, Sunkissed had a conversation with my aunt because they actually worked at the same job. And Sunkissed, who I now call Mama J, didn't have any kids, had a, a boyfriend but not a husband. Um, and just said, hey, uh, I don't think I'm able to have kids. And I see you have these two and you have all these others. Do you want me to help? And help started out with, you know, hanging out for the night, having a sleepover or hang out for the weekend. And then it became, you know, do you want to stay here long term? And we did. So what is your relationship like with Mama Jay? Uh I, I'm a religious man. Uh, she, she's one of the reasons I'm religious because I, uh, I have always believed, always said that she's evidence to me of a higher power because she embodies what I would think an angel would be in human form. I mean, this is a lady who took in two kids that she had no relationship relationship to minus them being next door neighbors, fully adopted us, never married, never had men in the house, um, had two jobs at one point, go to work, tedious, like putting uh, pieces of a motherboard together all day. She still does that to this day. In the evening, coming home, making sure we've done our homework, putting some dinner on the table, going right back out and going to uh, the local hospital and being a janitor uh, until after we went to sleep. So me and my brother put ourselves to sleep. And she did that and like incessantly um that was routine and all through that i didn't see tears i didn't hear about any struggles um i never heard her complain and i in my entire entire life i've never heard her say anything like you you all were such a burden don't you see how much i gave up um so um she's an important uh, powerful person in my life probably the first version of a leader that i saw honestly Wow. Did you eventually have any male uh, role models or male influences that were significant to you during this time period? 
Sure, I, I did. Um, to be quite honest, um, some of those cousins that were doing unscrupulous stuff, I kind of idolized because that's what I was seeing at the time. I thought that was that type of stuff was cool. When they listened to the music, that was cool. They had the cool clothes and things. So um, not until I moved out, I was still in the same environment because I just moved next door, just to mind you. Not until I moved out of that house and had the positive influence of Mama J, even though she's a female, did I start to realize, well, there's, there's something else I need to be looking for. So I, I'm at uh, John P. Thomas Elementary School, and I start to look for that stuff around me. And one of uh, the major ones in my life were very early onwards, Corey Roberts and uh, Keith Burton, his assistant uh, teacher. Corey Roberts, young guy, 25-ish, just graduated from the University of South Carolina, brand new teacher, young and black. Looking, It looked like me. And he uh, took an investment, uh, took time to invest in me, as did Keith Burton. Keith Burton at the time was going to college, wanting to become a teacher. He was also young and black. And uh, his mom actually was an administrator at the same school. So I was familiar, uh, at least with his mom, from some of my disciplinary issues. <laughs> uh, but they both one day, um, I, I, I've told this story a lot, and it's, it's, this was a crucible moment for me, a definite pivot where I changed uh, my direction. And it's uh, where they stopped me from going to recess one day and asked me where I wanted to be in five years. And I counted all my fingers in front of them, like 11, 12, 13, you know, being real obnoxious saying I wanted to be in high school and they very quickly started asking me a lot of rapid fire questions what school um, do you want to be involved in sports uh, how are you going to get the practice you know are you going to be working how are you going to get the work how are you going to pay for that car that you say that you want are you going to have you know, gas insurance all the stuff that 11 year old just can't answer and um they told me if you know if I stop being such a class clown because they saw potential in me. They saw I had some type of talent, some type of intellect. If I took all that negative energy and I put it toward answering those questions that they were asking, asking myself those questions, then maybe I'd be something someday. And I really took it to heart. Um, it was the first time I think a man that looked like me in my life had said something like that to me. And then I started seeing it in other areas. I started looking for that and craving it. I found it on sports fields and coaches. I found it in Boy Scouts through our den master and, and or that was that Cub Scouts den master. <laughs> um, I just found it in other places after Corey Roberts showed me what it looked like. So how did your behavior change after that? I stopped messing around in school, man. I gotta be quite honest. At the same time that that happened, they offered testing for this math program that still exists but is very small it's called megs the mathematics education for gifted secondary school students megs they they offered this test and it basically had college level algebra and some trigonometry and stuff on it they offered that to me as a fifth grader they said hey if you can pass this test we can send you to this specific program keith burton was in college so keith burton was like i'll tutor you on this stuff and it just somehow came to me. This was like a, a late STEM program. If you look it up, it'll say something about its connection to uh, NASA, which is how it started. And I passed this test. I won two students at, at John P. Thomas, and it afforded me the opportunity to go across town to a different um, a school I wasn't zoned for. 
um, which also beget me going to a high school I wasn't zoned for, which vastly changed the trajectory of my life. And um, it's because I just kind of, from their conversation, buckled down and also had this coinciding opportunity that Keith Burton also helped on. Let me ask you, did you believe in yourself before these two men and Mama Jay? I mean, I'm just curious to what extent they were able to help you believe in yourself in a way that maybe you didn't before, or did you already have a level of confidence that was just kind of natural to you? That is a great question. Um, One that I've never been asked. And reflecting right now in the moment on the spot, I would say no. I would say I was a broken little man for sure. At this time, not religious, not having any sense of centering in that way. Having It's still in the same neighborhood with a lot of interesting stuff going on around me. And acting out in school because, I, you know, I didn't know where my real, quote unquote, real parents were and what they were up to. I didn't know my father was in jail. And that's just not something to be happy or proud or fill in the blank about when you're, you know, 10, 11, 12. So no, no, I did not. I think before those guys came in my life and said, you can do this, combined with the opportunity that came, that was provided me by the public education system, combined with the stable structure that I had in my home with my mom, with Mama Jay, that was saying, everything ain't perfect, but I'm gonna make it all right. And then her also saying, I will sign for you to go to this program and wake you up at 5 a.m. So you can catch the bus and ride it for two hours to go to Creighton Middle School. I needed all of that to, to give me a sense of, of self. Do you think there was significance in the fact that instead of telling you what you should do, they asked you questions? Um, I think sometimes there's power in questions. That It's almost instead of them just saying, hey, Chevy, you should do this, you can do this. They almost put it on you to answer for yourself. Like, what is your plan for five years? Did you find that to be significant? Looking back on I, it? I do, especially now um, as a leader and as a father and as a person that's into mentorship. I always say the question that, you know, the, the answer is inside somewhere in you. All I'm here to do is to help you peel back the onion. So I'm, I, I need to ask the questions so you can come to this aha moment. I think that was actually demonstrated for me through them. Because hmm. again, like you, did, like you said, they didn't say, Chevy, you live in this neighborhood, you are of this socioeconomic status, this is what you, here's your options, vector me down you know, this street. And they, they start asking me questions about where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And it was, I mean, today, what I would think of that, what I would call it is guided reflection. Yeah. And it prompted me to answer those questions. And they weren't being, approving or disapproving of of where I wanted to go they were just assisting me you know Keith Burton didn't ask me like why do you want to take this Meg's test he said okay you want to do this I'm in college I know this math I can tutor you so I thought that was very it's very astute of you to point that out what I love too just hearing the story you've got these two men and Mama Jay they believe in you. They believe in you more than you believe in yourself, it seems like. They ask you the questions, and then they don't just leave it at that, but then they help resource you. Of course, you didn't. they didn't do it for you. You had to put in the work, and you had to 
to, you know, take those steps. But I also love that they followed up with these very tangible ways to help you start to see this path, which I don't know, I just find that to be significant when you're thinking about a mentor-mentee relationship. It's not just the questions are important, the responses are important, but that follow-up and that consistency seems to be equally as important. Do you do you find that to be true? I completely agree with you. And I mean, it's research-backed as well. The Center for Creative Leadership in North Carolina, when they define a, a developmental experience or a crucible experience, as many of us know, it has um, three components. Uh, one component is assess. So you got to see where a person is and, and give them some type of questions and analysis about to find out where that start point is. Then we need to challenge somebody. That's a second component, challenge, um, where you, you put them in a situation where they can then uh, grow. What people often forget is that other piece that they have defined through the literature and through the research, research which is the support piece. Yeah. The support piece is super important, right? It's not just, hey, let's see where Chevy is by asking him some questions. And let's put the challenge in front of him, the next test. And then let's step away. The supportive yeah. piece of them sitting down, Keith Burton specifically tutoring me, Mr. Roberts specifically saying you can do this stuff. Um, my mom saying, I'll sign the paperwork and I'll wake you up and I make sure you have breakfast before you get on that long bus ride to just eat free breakfast again at school because that's where we are these days, uh, in those days rather. That support piece was entirely significantly important, which for me, now that I know the theory, illuminates it so much more that that's something as a leader I make sure I pay attention to. And it's easy for us in the military, like if, hey, I don't want to uh, jump topics too much, but you know, when you take somebody to the range, right, it's too easy to figure out how to make them a better shooter. We assess very well, put, it, put some targets up, shoot at it. The challenge part uh, is maybe changing the style, reflexive fire, or different types of weapons. Yeah. The support piece just seems natural, but really think about it. The support piece is beans, bullets, time. Like if you take any of that stuff away, if we go to the range without bullets and without water and without food, without trans, that's a really boring range. You're right. Yeah. No, I think it, it's, it's essential. Uh, it's interesting to hear you lay that out too, because it's one thing to give someone belief and then you resource it. It's like it, it's the water that helps that belief grow into something real. It's one thing, you know, we all know uh, you can believe it all day long, but until you start to act on it and then you, and then your belief grows. Um, I'm curious, uh, Chevy, how you processed your dad's incarceration. What types of emotions did you feel the most during that time? Was it embarrassment? Was it denial? And I'm also curious kind of how you've processed that uh, over the years as you've you know, gotten older and, and matured. So interestingly enough, when I, when I think of myself back then and I think of my brother, I picture us uh, going down a, a Florida street. It's my brother on one of those big wheels, if you remember what those look oh, like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's me up on his shoulders hmm. um, and him holding his hand down because he's a very tall individual, holding his hand down very lanky-like to assist my brother, keep him out of the street and stuff, and me on top of his shoulder. Those are the, that's a big memory I have from my childhood of him. And I think of my mom stepping away and being gone for a couple of years at that point, um, him being kind of our everything. 
and me not knowing that he was doing something on the side that was getting him in, in, in some trouble. Right. Yeah. And I, then I see that all being torn apart and me being two States away uh, in South Carolina and, and him being in prison. I think at the time there was a lot of disbelief for sure, because my aunt started telling me stuff like he was, he made those choices because he didn't want you guys. I was like, wait a minute. I was, I was on his shoulders. And my brother, I mean, I, I remember this. I'm going to have a very visual memory. So this isn't like a vision. I think, I think I'm making up. I, re- I remember being up on his shoulders, right? Yeah. And I remember having so much fun and everything. So first it was a lot of disbelief because they were, they were feeding me stuff like that. And I don't know if it was just their coping mechanism to not answer the questions, right? I didn't know what he actually did until I was an adult. So I think at first it was disbelief. And then it was, it straight up turned into anger. Um, I, I maybe uh, an uncouth joke today is that I'm kind of like the Incredible Hulk. And if you've ever seen that line in the Avengers where it's like, you don't want to know my secret, I'm always angry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's always been something. Um, it made itself very prevalent in my life when I was really young. Um, then I figured out how to, to deal with that because obviously we're all fallible. We're all always, uh, we're all broken in some different ways. We just figure out how to, to mend it. Um, so it, it turned from disbelief to, to anger um, until I got to be about 18. Um, so he got out of prison. He didn't, you know, this wasn't my entire childhood. He eventually got out of prison eventually found out that we were adopted by this random lady and he eventually uh, sought us out. So throughout my middle school time and my high school time, um, he was in and out. He would show up. Uh, He would like drive up to South Carolina and try to surprise us, Um, which my mom was quote unquote cool with, but obviously it kind of irritated her. He would uh, offer to take us for the whole summer. So there was a couple of times we actually went down to Florida and stayed with him for the whole summer. And there were other times when it was kind of like, we had these happy moments, but uh, he had a, a plethora of bad habits um, that he still deals with today. And some of those times were real tumultuous. And I didn't figure this whole relationship out with my father until I was about 18, when he missed my high school graduation mm. and, and missed me going off to, at first, the prep school uh, before I went to West Point. And um, I hadn't seen him for or heard from him at that point for about a year. I was home for Thanksgiving break, one of those times when he likes to pop up. So I told my mom, I said, if he just pops up, probably going to fight. And she said, no, you're not. And the phone rang and it was him on the phone. We had a really nasty conversation um, where I let it all out, screaming, crying, cursing, everything. And it all kind of came to a head. I think at that point in my life is where I let uh, the vast majority of it go. I put it all on the table. We were both grown men about it. There was no turning back after that conversation. And he's he's involved in my life today. Wow. um, Because, and this is when I, you know, I'm 39 now, I'll be 40 this year. This is a 20-something-year-old conversation that we had where it was just like, hey, here's brass tacks. Here's what happened. He told me what happened. He told me what, how it impacted his life. I talked about how it impacted mine. And we kind of came to a, okay, we're both adults. How can we uh, move forward? Did You mentioned that you 
had this anger inside of you and then you've kind of learned ways to process that anger. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, one, what ways did you learn to process that anger? And I guess also did that conversation, was that a point where the anger just kind of went away? So I guess that's kind of a two-part question, but take okay. it anywhere you want. Okay, the processing part for me is, um, one, I, I, for a lot of my early life, me and my brother made a mistake. Me and my brother had a conversation early on because of what tumult was happening to us, okay? Like all that stuff that I've kind of alluded to, but there were shootouts in my neighborhood. I, I ducked in my own kitchen at my house because stuff was going on. Um, my house was kicked in. We had, we still do have at 1017 Churchill Circle where I grew up, where my mom still lives, bars on the windows, uh, five locks on the front door, three on the back. My mom puts a bar under her door to this day because we had our, our door kicked in and stuff taken. Um, the first time I saw a dead body was not in a rock. It was in the extended part of my yard, in my, in my yard, uh, from something that happened in my neighborhood. Um, and a whole host of other things that happened growing up. We tended to see people who have trauma in our life, at least in our young lives, they were using it as an excuse or a crutch. And we actually really disliked that because we were like, you know, our lives are pretty messed up and we don't do that. So we made a pact when we were really young that we weren't going to talk about that stuff. We told each other, like, I mean, we're just not going to tell people about our lives. That stuff stays home. That stays with us. We'll present an image. And I truly believe today that that was unhealthy and it was wrong because it, again, today I believe I'm a conduit. These aren't my stories to keep. Um, You never know who else needs to hear that. They made it so I can make it too. Uh, So a lot of that early on was that's how we processed it. We just didn't talk about it. So it took me a long time until I was a teenager to like, hey, no, that's no, we need to start talking about this stuff and, and, and getting through it. So that's the first piece of how I dealt with it. It's just changing that mentality that this is not a secret. Yeah. Um, nor is it my story to keep. I truly believe that. Like, I just believe it's not mine. It just, it happened to me and I need to share it. The second piece of dealing with it all uh, in a healthy way, at least for me, was being, being able to be truly vulnerable and being able to talk about it without being overly emotional and, and sharing in a way that was truly sharing um, in a way that could be helpful for maybe somebody else. And not being picky and choosy about what I share. Like if someone really wants to know and someone really wants to ask, then I'm going to tell it. Yeah. Um, because that makes it okay with me, right? If I, that's how I process. Uh, you know, I get it off of my chest. I get it out. And there's been so many times that so many other people have broken stuff in their life that now we can commiserate on. Or someone can look to me and see all the shiny stuff, right? The West Point graduate, the Ivy League stuff but then see all this broken stuff like, oh my God, you made it. Well, yeah. Now I have a chance. And I think that's all, a lot of what leadership is, is you know, sharing that, that trueness. The, the last thing probably is um, just a simple fact that I've come to truly believe that I'm not here to judge anybody. So if anything, I can judge myself and I probably am overly critical on that. So I came to believe that there's no point in me judging my father for his circumstances or his choices. There was no point in judging my mother, uh, birth mother, that is, or her circumstances or her choices. And everybody else in my life, you know, my aunt telling me stuff that wasn't true about my father. 
I can't judge that. Who am I to judge? I'm just as broken and fallible as anybody else. And I, when I started to truly believe with that, believe that, that's when all that anger, that's when all that unhealthiness went away. Because I just realized, you know, I don't want to be judged that way. So if I'm going to live my life in that light, then I can't harbor any resentment or anger that has anything to do with judgment. So becoming non-judgmental in as much of a way as I can be, uh, really help. Wow. Man, so much gold there, Chevy. You, you're a really uh, inspiring person, and I love your uh, what you said there about just these are not my stories. These are stories that ultimately you seem to view it as these are stories that have been given to you. These are things that happened for you, and then just that willingness not to judge other people. Man, that's 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 awesome. And I know now, so you're pursuing your PhD at Tufts. Uh, you're studying character development. I'm really curious. I've never really dug into character development. What are the mm-hmm. biggest things you've learned so far about character development? I don't even know how, like, how, where do you even begin to develop character? Is that even possible? Like, how does that happen? Man, this is like talking about dark matter, right? <laughs> like, it's just one of these things, like, we need to wheel in Stephen Hawking. Yeah. It's a piece of you still around. Um, <laughs> This is an interesting topic that the biggest thing I, I learned uh, right off the bat is that, you know, I, for a long time, trying to understand psychology, uh, even teaching it at the collegiate level, you know, we always have this nature versus nurture debate. Yeah. One of the biggest things I've learned about character is it's a, it's a both and when it comes to uh, nature and nurture. It, it is a... You're a product of your environment as much as you are a product of what has been given to you. But even more important is that there's no, there's no specific trait called character, right? There's nothing in your genotype that is, says uh, you will have good um, character or not. I've also learned that your height, for example, has over 600 different genetic markers for your height alone. So if height is something we can really easily quantifiably measure, I think of something as, you know, something that is as qualitative as character. Hmm. Um, how many different uh, parts yeah. of our genome um, can touch on that? So major, major, major learning for me was really teasing out what that big ephemeral mass called character is and how it's a, a bunch of different attributes that we exhibit uh, but that we also believe like there's an internal piece here, right? Morals, you, value. Then there's this external piece, ethics, right? Rules, uh, systems and institutions. There's honor, which is, if you look at the original Latin, more about position and truth and word. And then there's integrity, oneness, authenticity, all based off of the, the root word integer. All these different components that we send, we tend to all mash into one, they all have these separate characteristics, if you will. And being able to parse that out and understand the origins of it has been truly fascinating for me. Have there been any practical takeaways for you in terms of how to develop character, either in yourself or in others? Yes. Very practical is, um, even though it's still th- theoretical, is something called relational developmental systems, RDS meta theory. talks about really, truly how the individual can't be stricken for the context. So practicality here is, if you know that, 
right? If you know that the individual and the context are so intertwined that you can't necessarily parse them out, that you know practically you need to focus on both if you're going to develop a character. So, for example, you can have programs based around talking about morals, ethics, honor, integrity, XY cases, uh, for example. But if you, and, and they focus on the individual, they focus on individual conversations, individual contributions, and what an individual brings to the table, you're not gonna get the complete return on investment of that person's development if you don't at the same time have a larger institutional learning development culture on the contextual side. Okay. So, right, if, if it's not, if you don't have a system in place where you actually value learning and development, you actually value what character means in the workplace and the organization, you can focus on the individual as much as you want, not gonna change things as, yeah. as best as you can. And on the vice versa, right? If you have all the structural contextual things in place, right? Like you have uh, educational interventions and structural interventions that people um, you know, in the environment have the ability to access character development or leader development, uh, leadership development in general, but you don't tailor make it down to those individual needs. Like you don't do those assessments of people's personalities or people's conflict resolution styles, et cetera, et cetera. Then again, you're not getting the most bang for the buck. It has to be a marriage of the two. Uh, practice, I mean, just brass tacks or you're just not getting where you could be, which makes it infinitely more difficult, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, there's so many questions I could ask just off of that. I mean, one, one in particular is how does the leader, I mean, it seems like you can spend all day talking about these different parts of character on an individual basis, but how does the leader then reinforce that in the culture? Like what are some top ways that maybe the leader can affect that in the organization? So I think um, a a leader has to be become astute about organizational culture and organizational behavior. I've been blessed to, you know, have a background in OB uh, organizational behavior and uh, have have read some stuff from uh, Edgar Schein, for example, guru with regard to organizational leadership. And his understanding of leadership in organizations would tell you that there's like three layers. The first layer is artifacts. And this is stuff that we see in yeah. the army. It would be guidons and patches and things right. like that, right? Yeah. Then there's right below the surfaces, um, espoused values. This is stuff we talk about. It's the leadership values that we have in the army, for example. But then there's a whole nother deeper layer, um, which is basic underlying assumption. Is this the stuff that, you ask, hey, why is that stuff happening? Someone might say, oh, we just always done it that way. I, I don't actually know how, why we do that. Um, so for a leader to put this stuff about character, I think, into an, uh, an organization to impact this culture, they need to make an assessment about where on that iceberg or where on, on that waterline they want to jump in. Are we just going to swim at the surface? So we're just going to change all the plaques on the wall put up some leadership values and everybody ascribe to that. Or are we going to get a little bit deeper and we're going to actually talk about our mission and our vision, right? Espouse values. And we're going to actually like institute a systematic process around here of talking about that stuff. So we ingrain it. And do you want to take it a step further and get even deeper and do structural changes 
do educational interventions that get after the basic underlying assumptions of asking the questions around, like, no, 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 let's really understand the why beneath all of this. Why do we have leadership? That's the interesting sidebar. Like, most people don't know where the LDR ship values come from in the Army, but we talk about them all the time. Yeah. Um, so getting deeper is deeper. how leaders... That's important. How leaders will figure this out, because that's how you embed it into the culture. Now, Shine would tell you that you don't have to start at, you know, you don't have to necessarily start at the service with the artifacts. You can start from the deepness. And then when stuff starts building up to espouse values, then you come up with the artifacts that seal it all in, if you will. Or you can start at just beneath the surface and let the artifacts kind of crop out and then uh, try to get a little bit deeper. You can start at any level. You just need to do the um, figure out what your organization needs, right? Like if it's really messed up, right, the organization, you probably want to get as deep as possible, right? But maybe the organization actually humming just right is is performing okay. It has there's a character in the ethos that is infused already. So the underlying structures are right, but we got some bad artifacts up, like. You know, this symbology we're using, this guy that we're using, this mascot we're using doesn't align with what we uh, what we say. So we can nix that and keep everything else. Um, it's just what I think what leaders tend to do is because of um, everything that uh, uh, is urgent right here in front of us and we have crisis all the time. We don't take the time to step back, really do that pause and look at these things. Yeah, I think that's a great point, that last one too, of just just acknowledging as the leader that this is critical for my focus. I have to, you, you got all these tasks out there, they need to be accomplished, yes, but the culture, the health of the organization has to be really my primary focus. It's like, that's the foundation for all of these other things, especially long-term, is focusing on the people I love the layers that you just shared. I'll make sure and put that in the show notes of just mm -hmm. these different layers and kind of doing that self-assessment of you and of your organization to figure out, okay, how can I improve this uh, and not getting caught up so much in the day-to-day -to, -day to where that's just a second thought that you, that you have. That's got to be a priority. Very rarely should a leader, you know, I like to think of leadership as a, sort of like a hospital. Very rarely should a leader, and I'm, I'm talking about, if we're talking about army leadership, we can talk about platoon leaders where, where it starts at least on the officer side. Very rarely should that platoon leader, that company commander, that battalion commander, that brigade commander be in doing triage. Like that just, they, they should all be stepping back and, you know, if they're the brigade commander, they should be running the hospital, right? Yeah. They should be thinking about input and output of patients. They should be thinking about spaces for hospital beds. They should be thinking about supply and demand of the equipment that they need. They shouldn't be down, even if they have the experience, right? Even if they're a really good surgeon, they shouldn't right. be in there right. uh, putting tourniquets and stuff on folks. That's not, I mean, that's not where leaders should be. That, yeah. That's where that's where other people should be that, are, that have the subject matter expertise at that level. I mean, I think a lot of times... And I don't want to just speak for the army. I think the military in general can force us into, especially in crisis mode, can force us into all hands on deck. Yeah. Right? Everybody get in the emergency room. We have too many patients. And I'm not saying there's not specific instances where that's needed. 
What I'm saying is in the aggregate, leaders at whatever level you're at, this could even be the E5, by the way, because I, I, tr- I actually used to tell troops that uh, I used to say this as a platoon leader, every brand new private we got, you are now a leader because there's somebody else coming from AIT behind you. So get on the leadership train. That's good. Um, every leader at every level should be thinking about the now and the next, right? How can I zoom out of this situation and help people get what they need? And where do I actually need to be? Do I need to be the doer or do I need to be the thinker and the seer and the believer and the visioner? Yeah. It's that difference between working in the organization and working on the organization. Um, and I also yes. think, I think sometimes in the army too, we struggle with this a little bit because there's this confusion about being willing to do the hard jobs. And I think leaders certainly are willing to go and should be willing to do any job, willing to pick up trash or willing to do those Absolutely things. Right. But there's a difference between you know willing and can and should. Uh, and I also think you make a great point about viewing every person all the way down to the lowest person in that organization as a leader that kind of goes ties all the way back to the discussion we had at the very beginning about helping people believe more in themselves and see more in themselves than they see in themselves in that moment. And then of course, resourcing them and reinforcing it, which I think you make a great point about that too. It's not just saying it one time, and then mm-hmm. saying it again, but it's that constant reinforcement through all parts of the organization, whether it's our teaching, it's our doing, it's our environment that we create, it's what we reward, uh, it's what we certainly, you know, when people step out of line, we also don't tolerate that. But man, so many great points. And I, uh, I wish we had uh, more time to dive into more <laughs> of this. I do want to, um, Chevy, as we're wrapping up here, yes. I do want to ask you about your maybe top two or three book recommendations uh, for people that want to go out and dig a little bit more deep into some of the things you've been learning in your PhD studies and also just the studies you do in mentorship, leadership, uh, character development, all of those things. So uh, this is a a tough question um, um, because I've become a reader, a big time reader um, in my adulthood. And I have, man, I have so, so many books that have been life changing. But when I think about some of them, um, one of the things that comes to mind is uh, a way to answer that question is to answer it with book recommendations I've given for people when they ask me, how do I do all the stuff that I do, right? Father, a PhD student, nonprofit leader, um, and every, being an active duty army officer, blah, 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 yeah, active right. in the community. So how do you do that and not burn out? So I would love to give the recommendation of uh, Tony Swartz and Jim Lohr's uh, The Power of Full Engagement. Hmm. So this book was actually a recommendation to me when someone saw all that I was being blessed with the ability to do and said, Hey man, you actually practice a lot of these principles and you're a nerd. You like to get into the science of this stuff. You should read this book. Um, his a friend of mine named Ryan Neely, who's an army officer, uh, who was a CGSC classmate of mine said, read this. And I read it and you don't my man, that copy that I have is so beat up from passing it around. So in it, these two authors break down the science of full engagement and what they talk about specifically is time management doesn't exist, right? Time is just this ephemeral thing that we get 
the privy of uh, privy of watching pass us by or reflecting upon. So you can't manage time. Time manages you. But what they say you can manage is your energy levels, right? So you can be on at all times. And they get into the science of like uh, circadian rhythms, which most of us know. They also talk about ultradian rhythms, which most of us don't know. Um, but they talk about spiritual fitness. They talk about your physical fitness. They talk about intellectual fitness and a whole lot of other areas. Um, but the main point is finding when you are at peak and how to maintain those peak levels of engagement so you can be the father, the mother, the leader, the community engager that you need to be changed my life. Wow. Because I kind of, that was one of the ways I tried to started to figure out my introversion and how I needed to re-engage myself in small little incremental ways so I could be on peak as much as possible through my day. It started to talk about habitual sleep and getting up and going to sleep at the same times and all of that stuff. It was really, that, pro, that book is powerful to change your life. So that's, that's awesome. one for sure. Another is um, that changed my life is, um, wow, um, Clarice Bryan's Expect Nothing. Um, I will throw this one out there because I've actually had to repurchase this book a couple of times because people have not given it back. Um, so many, many moons later, to talk to the beginning of the story, I did finally reconnect with my birth mother. Hmm. After about a quarter century, about 25 years, and I found her again when I was 29 through MySpace back in the day. And so she's still in my life today. She was at my house for Thanksgiving, uh, this past uh, Thanksgiving. One of the things she gave me um, that I, I cherish now that we have a reestablished relationship was that book. And I was talking about non-judgment. And this is one of the books that kind of talked to it, talked to it a bit. So this book is actually Buddhist philosophy. And in it, it talks about having no expectations of work relationships, of your marriage relationship, of your home, of the future, et cetera, et cetera. How that uh, getting to that point where you can like lay those expectations down will bring you to a place of Zen. So I kind of attribute it, the way I kind of explain the book is it uses a little anecdote in there. Like if we find, if we come across a rock, and the rock is just sitting there We're like, okay, it's a rock. It has defined itself as a rock. We define it as a rock, but we don't expect it to do anything. But if it started to float, wait a minute, that's not a rock, right? Or if we move it and it's like a doorstop, then we have redefined it as a doorstop, but we don't expect it to do anything but be a rock. But we place all these other expectations on mostly people um, and people we interact with, especially in relationships. And the, the author, Clarice Bryant, is trying to say, well, what if we just let everything kind of define itself and be what it is and have no expectations? Now, quick counterpoint, we're in the military, right? You have to lay out expectations. This is how I've reconciled it for me. And maybe it's rationalization. This is how I've worked it for myself. I've never been enlisted. I don't have prior service experience. So when I would sit down across from my... NCO counterpart when I commanded at the detachment level and at the company level, 
there's no way I'm trying to tell these E7s and E8s what I expect of them because I've never, I've never been in their shoes. I've never been, uh, you know, the, the the senior in enlisted person for a company. I've never been the senior enlisted person for a detachment, a team. What I would say is where we can meet in the middle is there's a defined standard. Um, so we can meet in the middle of where the standard is and you either are going to meet the standard or you are not. And I have no value judgment there. Again, no judgment. I'm just going to be an honest broker. We agreed upon these standards. They were not my expectations. You define how you were going to be as an enlisted leader. And I do that upwards too, right? I've never been a 06 level commander or a general officer. Guess what? The division commander, it's the first time they commanded a division. So how can I have expectations? Oh man, this person's a two-star general, man. They got to have this stuff to get. This is the first time they commanded a division. The Corps commander, three-star, first time he commanded Corps. No expectations. What I do know is there's probably a rubric, there's probably a mission, there's probably a vision that's coming out from that individual. And that's what we can hold them to the standard of. No expectations. Surprise me or disappoint me. And that book taught me a lot about that and helped me with this idea of, of no judgment. Um, and I would like to debate anybody on it if they want to read the book too. It just changed my life because that those two books for sure um, have defined probably uh, me going forward uh, and, and just the leadership I've had. Uh, being able to read both of them early on in my career have, have really changed who I am. Um, those two probably the best I could give a whole bunch more, but I'll stop there. I love those. Wow. I haven't read either of those. The last one makes me think of one of my favorite pastors, Andy Stanley. Uh, I've listened to one of his marriage series and he talks about that difference between expectations and appreciation, especially in the context of a marriage where if I expect my wife to, let's say, make the bed and then she makes the bed, she gets no points. Right. So it's yep. just like this, well, you, I expected you to do that. And then you do it, of course. But if you kind of have no expectations, it, it just creates this demeanor and disposition of appreciation for all the little things. And I also think about it in terms of just practicing gratitude too. It's, it's yeah. easy to not see the good stuff until we intentionally and deliberately hunt for it. And then all of a sudden we see these things with fresh eyes that we didn't see before. So Chevy, I am so impressed with you and your life and uh, your vulnerability, your willingness to share these stories and bless all of us with them. So uh, genuinely thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, your authenticity and for sharing that with this audience today and uh, sincerely appreciate it. And I wish you and your family the best as you all navigate the COVID-19 and uh, <laughs> And uh, all these interesting times right now. Great time for no expectations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Cal, this was great. Uh, great questions. I appreciate uh, the ability to connect with others. I think it's my life's purpose. Um, to, I think I'm purpose built to serve others. So uh, mediums like this are allowing me to serve my purpose. So if anybody wants to further connect, debate, love, uh, or get any deeper into their own authentic leadership, I would love to connect. Yeah, where is the best place to connect with you? And I know you have a nonprofit, Military Mentors. Can you just tell us that real quick? And I'll make sure and put all that in the show notes as well at my website, yeah, um, calwalters.me. 
Okay, people can can look up militarymentors.org and they can find uh, the organization there and find myself. Um, they can also find me at Chevy at militarymentors.org. That's a simple email. Um, but I'm on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on IG and Twitter, but it's kind of in receive mode more than put out mode. Uh, so the best place is probably that, that uh, Military Mentors email or my LinkedIn and Facebook accounts for sure. Awesome, Chevy. Well, again, thanks so much, buddy. And I uh, look forward to staying in contact and sincerely appreciate all your insights today. Thanks, bud. Thanks, Cal. Hey, friends, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Chevy Cook. Wow, what an inspiring story and what an inspiring person. If you were impacted or inspired by this, please share it with a friend or share it with someone in your network. Also, if you want to help us grow and make a bigger impact, that's what we're all about. It's not about making money. It's about impacting people. Please go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps us get more exposure and inspire more people. And finally, before you leave, I want to offer a challenge in the form of a question. Is there someone out there that needs you to help them believe in themselves? It was powerful to hear how Mama Jay and these two teachers truly changed the trajectory of Chevy's life by simply helping him see a future that he hadn't seen before. And they equipped him with resources and they went on the journey with him. That's what a mentor does and what a journey it was for him and still is. And you and I can be that for someone else, but it takes being intentional. And I pray that we will do that today or this week. Let's go out. Let's make an impact. Life is short. Let's make it count today, friends.